reading for today is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 16. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thanks, Laura. Hey, Redemption. Long time no see, right? Yeah. Uh, I've been in Iowa uh, every summer for the last 22 summers. I've been um, pastor of a family camp up in northeast Iowa. Uh, and it's been great. Lots of long-term relationships. It's a wonderful camp. Um, and I get to teach there every year uh, to the families and the uh, staff at the camp. Um, it's, it's in northeast Iowa. We're right next to the Mississippi River, so we get to canoe and kayak on the, on the Mississippi. They have a little lake. They have a blob. They have shooting. They have uh, archery. They have rocket, rocketry, where you make rockets, and food is really good. And then nine times during the week, they have to go to church and listen to me talk. So, and people pay money for this. <laughs> it's an amazing thing. I, it, people in Iowa are just a little different than here. Anyway. Um, so that's where I was, and I'm very thankful to Cody and Josh, both Cody and Josh, for handling uh, the preaching these last two weeks. Fantastic messages, both of them. I was actually here last week for the 5 o'clock service, so I got to catch Josh's. I, the only thing I'm, just, I'm still working through on Cody's message is the fact that I don't get to have an opinion about coffee, apparently. So <laughs> we'll figure all that out. If you don't know what that means, you need to listen to his podcast. Um, so... Uh, what we have here today is one of the longest passages in Ephesians that we're going to go through. Uh, this should seem a little weird to us because it is. We've been going one or two verses at a time until today, all of a sudden, 12 verses. And so it's going to be, uh, there's some meat here and there's even some things that we're just not going to be able to, um, uh, to get to. But it's also, just like last week, Josh's message, um, it's also going to be very challenging, really challenging for some of us to hear. Um, and, and I really want to try to get at the essence of what Paul is, is trying to say. And, and I hope that uh, in the end, you'll understand where Paul is coming from, that it is coming from uh, a desire to proclaim the gospel and to be loving and to get people into relationship and not just a desire to condemn behavior and to judge behavior. Uh, very important uh, theme and understanding of this passage. So um, also, as Cody alluded to, very difficult uh, week this past week in our, in our community, a lot of different things happening, challenging things, a lot of suffering. And so 
Uh, before we get started, I'd just like to pray about that and also pray that God would open our hearts and our minds to uh, the truth of God's word. Uh, Lord God, we, we confess and proclaim your majesty and your sovereignty, your grace and your love and your mercy, and we are grateful for that. We are thankful. But there are also times when, <laughs> when it is really hard, and, and you're going to challenge us, uh, not only with your word, but also with life circumstances that, are, that just aren't the way it's supposed to be. And we have trouble, uh, questions and we're troubled by that. And so, God, we need to know that we can come boldly to your throne of grace and mercy and, and be able to lay that out for you and be honest with that. To be able to complain, but also uh, know that your love covers everything. And so as we do this today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be the power that illuminates your word here today. And I also pray that your Holy Spirit would fill all of us, but especially those lives, those souls of the people that are challenged this week by their life circumstances. We lift them up to you and we ask for your peace, your hope, your comfort, your provision, and your protection. We ask for your wisdom in all things. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, at the beginning of chapter 5 in Ephesians, uh, Paul calls upon us to be imitators of God. And, and literally, the picture is to walk in the footsteps of your Father, who is God. And in doing so, you will then walk in love. We're called to walk, to imitate God, and to walk in love, to live our lives in love, because of the gospel. Paul's not just saying, hey, just do this. He's saying, because you are now light, you were darkness, now you are light. Because you are in the gospel, because God has saved you through his son Jesus Christ, he's calling you to something as well. He loves you as you are and saves you where you are, but then he calls us and calls us to something. And, and so he starts again by saying, this is going to be the application of the gospel in our lives. We already went through chapter 4 where he was doing that as well. And then he gets to, chap uh, to verse 3 in, in, in chapter 5 which is what Paul, uh, Josh covered last week. And it says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetous, covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, which is idolatry, worshiping false gods, should not even be named among you. And then these 12 verses that we look at today unpack verse 3 uh, to a greater extent. And move towards verses 15 and 16, where Paul kind of stops and has a little summary verse, reminding us again that we need to walk as wise, not as unwise people. And then, and then he moves forward again from verses 15 and 16 and begins to further unpack what that looks like in terms of our relationship in the church, our relationship in the family, and our relationship in, in work. And so there's this flow that keeps going from 3 into 15 and 16 and from 15 and 16 into even as far as, uh, as chapter 6, uh, verse 9, that, that we need to see the, the treatise that he's laying out. And in fact, today, I would say that our big idea is verse 15. Look carefully then at how you walk, not as unwise or as wise. What's a synonym for the word unwise? Be foolishness. Don't. Don't walk as a fool in this world, but walk as somebody who has uh, the wisdom of God. 
And he starts in verse 5 by saying, this sexual immorality, this idolatry, those who do those things have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now, this is a major, major statement. There's essentially two destinations in life. You're going to be in the kingdom of God or you're going to be excluded from the kingdom of God, which we've assigned the, the name hell for. Yeah, you're in or you're out. And, and if you engage in these things, Paul is saying, you will not have an inheritance in the really the place where you do want to be. Uh, essentially, you won't be able to uh, get in. And he says that about sexual immorality and idolatry. Think of it this way. Think of sexual immorality and idolatry as representing sins of the body and sins of the mind. So think even more comprehensively. But doesn't this sound rough? Sexual immorality, boom, no inheritance. Idolatry, boom, no inheritance. Is that what it takes to get condemned to hell? And the answer is kind of, but not really. There's something deeper here going on that Paul is desperate for us to get to. We have to go deeper. If we just think it's just particular behaviors that end up getting us a ticket into hell, it's an adventure in missing the point. The problem that Paul is talking about is placing your trust in something other than God. That's why he talks about idolatry here. Because sex, sexual identity, and sexual immorality are gods. They were gods in the first century where Paul wrote, they're gods today. We worship at the altar of sex, sexual behavior, sexual identity, sexual orientation. We sacrifice, we serve the gods of sex, sexual orientation, sexual identity, and sexual behavior. And we sacrifice for them. Paul, ta I, I keep referring to Josh as Paul. That should be a compliment, right? Let him know. Anyway. Um, Josh talked last week about how if, if you're a gospel person, if you've been saved by Jesus, there's going to be a life of sacrifice that you're going to have to live. You will have to sacrifice. Guess what? If you reject Jesus and live for the false gods of this world, you're going to have to sacrifice for them too. You're going to have to give up certain things to serve those false gods, those idols in your life as well. You're going to serve them. You're going to sell out for them as well. You see, the, the behavior that Paul speaks of is a manifestation of a heart that is submitted to something other than Jesus. He's talking about idolatry here, but wants to use sexual immorality as his example. It's valuing our broken desires over relationship with the Creator. I would much rather serve my broken desires than a relationship with the Creator. It's trusting your sexual identity, your sexual behavior, or just sex itself to give you ultimate meaning, purpose, and fulfillment in life. And those who have exhausted themselves going down that path know that that path really doesn't lead anywhere. But it's hard when you're in the middle of that path and it seems like things are going pretty well. It's hard to hear that, I know. So here's what Paul says. This is what we next get into. 
He says, if you turn your back on God in order to worship these things, become an idolater, God is going to honor you for that. God's willing to give you exactly what you want. He's not going to meddle anymore in your life. Sooner or later, God will get to a point where he won't meddle anymore. He won't confront you. He'll give you what you want, his absence. There is no inheritance in the kingdom of God for people who have placed their faith and trust and belief in something other than God, including sexual immorality. That's what he's talking about. And and you look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of, the things, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That whole wrath thing. We don't like to talk about wrath, especially the wrath of God, right? It's a frightening subject. It's a difficult subject. It's interesting because there are various forms and manifestations of wrath. And the wrath that Paul is talking about here is the chaos and madness that one experiences when God completely withdraws his presence. This is, this is really important to understand. The wrath of God is often more passive than it is active. The wrath of God is expressed actively, to be sure, but it's also expressed passively. The wrath is also expressed by him just withdrawing. Much of God's wrath is manifest by giving us what we want. He finally leaves us alone instead of his active judgment. If God is still confronting you and disciplining you and making you think about hard things that you don't want to think about, that's good. (laughs) It's when you don't feel anything at all about those things anymore. That's when I would say you really need to start worrying. Because maybe he's turned you over to your desires, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And and I will tell you, if God leaves us alone, that is the definition and manifestation of hell. Think about it. And I know, I know, the flames, the fire, I get that, the gnashing of teeth, I I get all of that imagery. But, But deeper and more important than that is that God is not there. He's completely absent. That's why it's so dark and horrible and awful, because he's gone. He's not present there. The absolute absence of God. It's interesting to me, uh, we did this a few years ago when we went through Romans. Romans chapter 1, in the middle of the chapter, Paul says, and the wrath of God is being revealed. The wrath of God is being revealed to us. And then three times he shows us that the wrath that is being revealed is God stepping away from those who have decided that their desires are more important than a relationship with God. It's his passive wrath. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1. Matt Chandler, the pastor and the author, he says this, God's passive wrath is far more alarming than his active wrath. It's far more alarming. You think the world is screwed up now? The world's pretty screwed up. Could we all at least agree the world's pretty screwed up? Yeah, you think it's screwed up now? At least we have what's known as the common grace of God, meaning even for those who don't believe in him, there are still benefits that all people enjoy because of his presence in this world. 
But when his divine presence is removed, the darkness, the chaos, and the madness will be indescribable. It's the old saying, some of you have maybe heard this before, for those who don't believe in Jesus, this world is as close to heaven as they will, be, they will ever get. And for those who do believe in Jesus, this world is as close to hell as they will ever get. Also in verse 6, he says, let no one deceive you. This is yet another warning from Paul about buying into the wisdom of the majority popular culture. That's true. And he warns about that all over the New Testament. But in this case, it is also a warning against the common, very common, heretical teaching inside of many first century churches that goes like this. A person who claims Christ as Savior has absolutely no need to live a life in pursuit of holiness because, man, we're forgiven. Grace covers everything, so now I can just go, cra I can go crazy and go do what I want. It's called licentiousness. We have now license to sin because we're covered by the grace. That's a complete misunderstanding of grace and forgiveness. Total misunderstanding. And there are numerous places in all of the New Testament letters, Jude, John, James, Paul, that speak to this, this idea that you can just go and do whatever you want. And again, the irony, of course, is that we have the same heresy today. I'm forgiven anyway, right? Might as well do whatever I want. God's got it covered. I had a friend a long time ago. We were friends for a long time, and he lived his Christian faith in exactly this way, and he did it robustly. And after a long, very difficult inner struggle and prayer, I finally had to walk away from this friendship because he was so unreliable and unpredictable and, and, and every time he would do something that was just devastating, he would get angry at me for not giving him grace. Well, I can't be around that. And then verse 7, when Paul says, don't be partners with them, with those who are thinking this way, who are in this darkness, he is not saying that we're to avoid all contact with the world. Please don't think that's what he's saying. He's simply saying don't betray your relationship with Jesus by joining in their dark thinking. This is, again, we talk about tension a lot in this church. This is that tension where Jesus says you need to be in the world but not of the world. This idea of being a Christian and then just retreating to your little Christian enclave and never having any relationship or contact with anything that is not Christian is not how God calls us to live. We have, we have Christian music, Christian books, uh, Christian food, Christian pets, Christian air. That's not the way we were called to live. He says you have to be out in the world, but he says, but you got to be careful. You need the spirit. You need the wisdom of God with you so that you also don't become of the world. You can't join them in the darkness. But you need to be a light in the midst of the darkness. And you look at verse 10. Let me reread it. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Again, we talk so much about tension here. Well, here we go again. The Bible certainly gives us many principles for life. For, for five weeks, we went through the idea of put off this and put on that. There's some, there's some tension there and, and some principles for life. But when the Bible presents principles for life, we need to understand that the Bible never offers us these principles without first calling us to God's wisdom and discernment. And that means relationship. There has to be a relationship there. This is not about a code 
for a law, this is about relationship. And it's not just that we have instruction in the Bible, but we need the wisdom and discernment to be able to apply that wisdom and instruction in each of our varying life contexts. And every one of us has a different life context. So it's very hard to have this one-size-fits-all. We have these principles, and then you need the filling and the illumination of the Holy Spirit to be able to start applying that in your particular context, because this is what pleases God. You're wrestling with these things. And you're living under the influence of the Holy Spirit and not under the influence of your desires. And what we have to understand in the midst of this is that in order to wisely discern and to do what is pleasing to the Lord, there first and foremost has to be trust in the Lord, which means relationship. You have to trust him or you're not going to do it. I'm not going to do it if I don't trust him, if I don't have faith, if I don't believe. But that means relationship. Trying to please God without trust is just hollow religion. Trying to please God without trust is void of relationship. And trying to please God without trust is compliance. It is not joyful partnership. How many of you prefer compliance at work rather than encouragement? (laughs) Tim Keller writes this. Legalistic remorse says, I broke God's rules. While real repentance says, I broke God's heart. And Paul is assuming here that there's already a relationship with God. Because in verse 8, he says, at one time you were darkness, now you're light. He's saying, you're in relationship, so this is how you're called to live. You, you, you want to discern what pleases God. So it, enc- it, it makes sense that he's encouraging them to discern what pleases God. I, I, I mean, one of my greatest desires in life is to be able to discern how to please my wife, Jackie. Next month, 31 years of marriage. It's a great desire of mine. I need to not just try to please her, but I need to discern how to, not always easy, but I needed to try to discern how to please her. So just some examples. Um, My wife is a very tough, strong woman who is amazing with power tools, but she hates filling her car with gas. So occasionally, I'll just grab her keys and go fill her car with gas. It's 10 minutes. It's on my credit card. But, you know, she really, that really pleases her. That's a big deal. Money in my bank account in her head. That's good stuff. Uh, She's, here you go. She's also, she's not a laundry person. She's kind of a George Costanza laundry person. You know, once once she's gone through her clothes, she just buys new ones. So I do all the laundry. So I do all the laundry, and I don't, I don't mind doing, there's something about my weird personality, I, laundry's okay, I don't sit around pining to do laundry, but I, I'm okay with it, so I do all the laundry, and that pleases her, she's really excited, and, and she does say occasionally, if you just now put it away, I fold it and put it on her side of the bed, if you could just learn to put it away, um, by the way, she is so good with fixing things around the house. I told you, power tools, all that stuff. She fixes everything around the house. So in my mind, this is a pretty good trade-off. She does all that stuff, which I am terrible at, and I do the laundry. Not bad. Uh, she likes it when she knows that she can sit down with me in an unhurried way and, and talk things out with me without me going into fixing mode. Right, wives? Okay? And I listen, and, I, and I'm empathetic, and I do it actively and attentively. 
It also pleases her when I just hand her $20 for no reason at all. Come to think of it, that, ple that would please just about anybody, right? <laughs> Maybe not. All right. Now, here you go. Why do I do this? Do I do this because of compliance? Not for 31 years. No one can do that for 31 years. You can't. If you think you can, that may be why you have some broken relationships. You can't do it under the power of compliance because there is no power in compliance. No one can comply that long. Do I do it because it somehow improves my other life situations? No. Could it be that I am in a loving, trusting relationship with Jackie for which I am grateful and it brings me great joy to partner with her in life and therefore to please her? Could that be it? Yes. That's why. This is not rocket science. It's not even rocket psychology. We humans are so prone to believing in laws, lists, codes, and rules that we forget how much the gospel is spoken of in terms of trust and relationship. That's the root of, of the gospel. Trust and relationship. And all these things that Paul is asking us to strive for in, in these in verses 5 through 14, he's asking for them as a result of the joy and gratitude that we have because God has first called us into a relationship with him through the gospel. I mean, and here you go. Let's, let's think about how this might moderate what Paul writes in verse 5 about sexual immorality. I've found that the biggest challenge for decades now, probably the last two to three decades, the biggest challenge the church and culture have had about sex is that both have always focused on the behavior. The church focuses on the behavior, the culture focuses on the behavior. And that's a loser context, not just for people in the church, but for everybody. All that does is make this issue one of compliance or religion on both sides. The church wants sexual compliance from the world. The world, the culture, wants tolerance compliance from the church. C can you see how nothing ever gets resolved from that? All we do is argue and yell at each other. Twitter has improved it, but I'm kidding. Okay. Uh, another problem, of course, is that usually when the church hears sexual immorality, Almost immediately, we only want to think about LBGTQ and, and all the other initials. There's no denying that that is a part of what Paul is talking about here. We know that from Romans chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We know that, but that's not all. All sexual behavior that falls outside of God's construction of sexuality is at issue here. Pornography, adultery, lust, do we need to go down the list? Because there's seven or eight more of them. All of them. Now, by the way, I'm going to go on just a little bit of, a, of, of an historical excursion here. Because I know that understanding the history of some of this stuff helps us understand what's happening today. And without this perspective, essentially we're lost and we're doomed to make the same mistakes that people have been making for millennia in some of this stuff. So there's three historical realities that I think are very helpful for us here. Here's the first one. Pornography was a huge deal in, which the, cult, in the culture in which Paul lived and wrote. 
It was a huge deal. Most of us think pornography is kind of a new thing, 20th, 21st century. Now, now I understand, they didn't have the internet, but it was a big deal in their culture, especially in Ephesus where he's writing. As we studied in the book of Acts in, chapter, in, uh, in um, 2017, last year, Ephesus, their primary industry in that large city was that they had all these artisans who manufactured and made votives, vases, and other artifacts. Many of these artifacts would then be expertly stenciled and painted with graphic images of pornography, and those were the best-selling. They sold the best. So this idea of pornography really being just a 20th and 21st century phenomenon is incorrect. Second of all, pedophilia. Adult sex with children, with minors, with 10-year-olds, 8-year-olds, not just 17, 16-year-olds. Adult sex with children. To be more specific, in Paul's context, especially a 30-year-old man having sex with a 10-year-old boy was not only mainstream in uh, in the culture in which Paul lived, but it was celebrated. So Paul's call to resist sexual immorality also included this. Now, a little by the way to the by the way here. This just hit at the end of last month, last week in July. And I would say, internally, I said, well, finally, here we go. And I'm guessing many of you saw it. Uh, Pedophilia now, according to some scholars, according to their research, And according to a TEDx talk in which one of these scholars presented her findings, pedophilia now is a legitimate sexual orientation and identity that we need to be tolerant of. Now, I hate to say, I said this would happen, but in the 1990s, as many churches, they didn't walk They didn't run. They rushed as fast as they could to be relevant and decided to move away from biblical sexuality to embracing cultural sexuality. I said, this won't stop with same-sex marriage. It won't stop there. Within decades, we will have a serious movement to legitimize adult-child sexual relationship. What do you think the response was that I got every time I brought that up? What was the response from people? Oh, don't be stupid. Don't be such a reactionary. This, this, of course, is acceptable. No one would ever go there. That's too far. That's pushing the line way too far. Don't, why are you such a reactionary? Don't even talk. That's just stupid. It's not going to happen. Have you ever heard of, anybody ever heard of NAMBLA, N-A-M-B-L-A? Anybody ever heard of that organization? National uh, North, I'm sorry, North American Man-Boy Love Association. It was founded in 1978. It's been trying for decades to gain mainstream legitimacy. Now they have it. Now they have it. They can just point to this scholar. See? You see, it, if you and I don't understand history, if we don't know where we've already been, then under the guise of sophistication and enlightenment, doesn't, doesn't that sound good? sophistication and enlightenment, but under that guise, we're going to do it again. Here's the third thing. Homosexuality was more common and more accepted in their culture than even today. There are two implications to that. I'm talking about Paul's culture. First century, uh, Greco-Roman, Mediterranean culture, more common, more celebrated, more mainstream than even today in the United States. First of all, 
Paul was not writing about the misguidedness of same-sex behavior in a culture that was on board with only heterosexual activity. When he wrote this, he was taking a very unpopular position. And I say this because one of the arguments I often hear is that Paul was preaching to the choir, so to speak, so it was easy for him to be against homosexuality. It's simply not true. Second of all, the cultural argument that we are now more enlightened is also invalid. Same-sex behavior has been out there before. This is nothing new. We're not more enlightened. It's interesting, Rosaria Butterfield, who's written a couple of books about this because she came out of a, a very heavy homosexual culture, lifestyle, and relationship to Christ. She writes in her most recent book, Why is sexual sin so hard to deal with? Because often sexual sin becomes a sin of identity, and she's right. At any rate, it is clear, this is what we're trying to get at. Paul's purpose here is not legalistic compliance to sex rules, coveting rules, and deception rules, but rather a trusting relationship with God that will then follow his will and his wisdom, even when it's hard and we don't like it. This will eventually lead to the behavior that is aligned with God's call in our lives. What we believe will lead to our behavior. Obedience to God is really not mandatory or compulsory. It's, it's inevitable by the filling and the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, Rosaria Butterfield, who had her sexual identity uh, redeemed by Christ, and she's written a couple of books about it, she says it this way. When God saved me, my new affection was not heterosexuality, it was Jesus. I was converted not out of homosexuality, but out of unbelief. At its root, my issue was not a behavioral issue, but a trust issue. The question for me also became, whose dictionary did I trust? The one I helped create, or the one that reflects the God who created me? Now, it is true that her, her sin was same-sex, but what she said holds true, holds sway with any sexual sin, any sin at all. When God saved me, my new affection was not lust, but Jesus. When God saved me, my new affection was not lying, stealing, or cheating, but Jesus. When God saved me, my new affection was not power, authority, and status, but Jesus. And then verse 13, the light and the darkness verse. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Paul saying, we are now light. When I tried college the first time, 77 and 78, that would be last century. Um, I went to NAU for one year. I had one year at NAU, Northern Arizona University, Flagstaff. And I, and I, abs I killed it up there, 2.4 grade point average, just dominating academically. There was a very popular um, kind of bar place just off campus up there at the time that was called Latin Quarter. We called it LQ for short. I'm going to go to LQ and get beers and play foosball. And they had all these foosball tables set up, and they had um, pitchers of old Milwaukee draft for a buck fifty. So you can see why a college student would want to spend a lot of time there. Dollar fifty pitchers and, and foosball. Okay. By the way, I'm not advocating this for other college students. I'm just saying that's what we did, play foosball. But it was always really dark in there. It was always pretty dark in there. One day... Uh, during the spring semester, I'm walking by there, 
and, and it's in the morning, the early morning, and I notice that all the doors are open and all the lights are on inside and they're pulling some things out. And I go, oh, I wonder what's going on in there. So I wandered in there. Yee! <laughs> the light exposed what that place was really like. Y- you know that nasty film that can get on stuff that never gets cleaned? Y- you know what I'm... T- of course you don't. You have wonderfully maintained homes. Okay, it was all, it was, oh my, I, 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 that's it. I'm not going back in there. I'm afraid to touch anything that's in there. Okay? And it was the end of the spring semester, so I was getting ready to go back to Phoenix anyway. But, it, okay, you, you see how the light exposes what's really there. That's why what we do, whether it's sinful or not, if we just, if we just If we feel guilty about it, we don't want anybody else to know about it for whatever reason. We do it under the cover of darkness. We hide it. In the first century, the only light they had were candles and and, and, um, the the sun. And so most of this activity took place at night because you you just didn't have a lot of light at night. There's even the story, and this wasn't even sin. It's just Nicodemus didn't want all of his professional religious uh, people, friends, knowing that he was going to Jesus. But when Nicodemus... Went to Jesus to talk to Jesus. He went at night. That's an important detail of that story because he was trying to hide it from all of his friends. He wanted to talk to Jesus, but he didn't want to do it in front of his other friends, so he went at night. It's the original Nick at night story. I understand that. But nevertheless, he went at night, and it's the same thing with sinful behavior. And Paul's saying, you were darkness. We were in sin. Now we are light. We are in Christ. And, and he's not just saying the darkness, but really, again, I've said this before. He's not just saying turn away from the bad, but he's saying turn towards what's even better. You are now light. We are on mission. Living as light is not as simple as just preaching and proclaiming, but more than that, it is often what one of our founding pastors, Tom Schrader, likes to say. It's making the invisible God visible by your life and your walk in the gospel out in the marketplace. And often being light is enough to get the conversation going because the light cannot be ignored. We love when the world says to hate. We give when the world says to consume. We serve when the world says to receive and take. We stand when the world says to sit down. And people notice it makes a difference. And why wouldn't it? I mentioned this before. You ever walk into a completely dark room and hit the light switch and the light comes on and the dark wins and chases the light out? The light always wins. When we walk into a situation, we are bringing Christ. We are bringing light. That's going to make a difference. And I hear this often, but the world is so dark, how can we possibly do anything? That's exactly when the light makes the most difference. You can do just a little bit of light, and you're going to make a difference. Many of the Christians I know tell me that their faith is their greatest asset in the marketplace. In, the vo- in their vocation. Their greatest asset, not a hindrance to what they're doing. And then those two verses that sort of summarize, encapsulate, and then project us into next, the next four or five weeks of, of messages. Look carefully then at how you walk. How you walk is a, an ancient Greek colloquialism for how you live your life. Look carefully at how you do that, not as unwise, not as foolish, but as a wise person making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Now, we'll talk more about these verses next week, but just understand, making the best use is actually the Greek word for redeeming. You're redeeming the time because the days are evil. He's saying you're living in a broken, dark world that's filled with sin, 
The only way you can navigate that is with the wisdom of God. If, you, if you're going to try to navigate that with foolishness, you're in trouble, I'm in trouble. It's a pretty simple statement, but it's deeply profound. So as we, as we wrap up this discussion, it's been heavy. But, but I want to come back to this notion of hiddenness that we just talked about. Darkness and light, sexual immorality, covetousness, the deceptive words that we often use, all of these things relate to hiddenness in some way, shape, or form. All of them do. You think back to Genesis chapter 3, God had created paradise, perfection. There was nothing corrupted or broken in what he had created. And it ends, Genesis chapter 2 ends that way. And then Genesis chapter 3, boom, the rebellion against God. And what is the first thing that the man and woman do? The instant that they sin against God for the first time, what's the first thing they do? They hide from each other. They hide from God, hidden. We are wired for hiddenness because of our sin. And what was the second thing they did? Blame shifting, which is a form of hiddenness. You're hiding from the guilt that you have because of what you've done. But, but Genesis 2.25, let me read it. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's the last verse before original sin story. The man and the woman were both naked and they were not ashamed. And, and I know some of you are like, okay, so nudity, like being at certain beaches in California, okay. Yes, it's physical nudity, but it's way more than that. This is emotional, spiritual intimacy, vulnerability, transparency, and authenticity that you and I know is deep somewhere in our created by God hearts. It's Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3 saying God has put eternity in our hearts. We know it's there. It's an intimacy that you and I are desperate to have, but we can't seem to find. This is why we chase all these things of the world. This is why we chase the, the sex, the, the money. And here you go, not that even those things in and of themselves are bad, but we chase those things as gods. We, we turn them into idols. We turn them into false gods, and false gods never fail to fail because there's that Deep longing for an intimacy that we know is real, that we know is there, but we can't have. Because it's been broken by what happened in Genesis chapter 3. That's why Jesus came, and that's why we need Jesus. He's the one who is redeeming all of that, and will redeem all of that. He, he's the one, I know it's very cliche, but he's the one who reverses the curse and starts leading us toward th this life that you and I have always wanted. Now, we're never going to have it perfectly in this world. That's part of the challenge. But we get a foretaste of it. When we come to Christ in the gospel, we start to get a foretaste of it, and then in the new Jerusalem, it is made perfect and complete, and we have it. I want you to think about this. What would, be, what would our lives be like if we never had to hide anything from each other? What would that be like? Last night, uh, I go to bed way earlier than Jackie. Maybe one of the reasons our marriage is so good. But at any rate, I, I, I'm, I'm a morning person. She's a night person. So I'm in bed 
and I'm thinking about this part of the message, and I have a wonderful marriage. It's great. I wouldn't give it up for anything. I, I would marry her again in a heartbeat. It's fantastic. Not that we don't have our problems, but it's been great. But I'm laying there, and I'm a pastor, and I know this stuff. And I'm laying there, and I got honest with myself. I love Jackie more than anything other than Jesus. And yet, how much am I hiding from her? Am I really honest with her about everything? Aren't there things that I still guard in my relationship with her? And the answer is yes. And then I started to think about the things that she was hiding from me. So I got out of bed and I went out and I confronted her. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> She's hiding stuff from me too. That's the reality. But we also have the gospel in our lives. And so we're striving by the power and the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit to work towards this beautiful intimacy that God gives us. What would life be like if we didn't have to keep track of our lives? What would life be like if we could not hurt each other no matter what we did? This is what Jesus is offering us. That's why we need to come to Jesus and keep coming. Let's pray together. Lord God, we... We are challenged by your word. And so we need something outside of us to be able to, to handle this, to apply it, to know it, to live it. And so we just pray for the filling of your Holy Spirit, God. You talk so much in scripture about the importance of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the way he guides us and how we need to trust him. And so often we just slough that off. As unimportant it's not unimportant it's life itself we need you we need the power of the resurrected son and we need the illumination of the filling of the holy spirit so god we pray that you would give us that and we pray it in jesus name amen